I read an interview of a man on his 100th birthday. And the journalist asked him, so what's the best part of being 100? Any guesses how he responded to that? He said, no peer pressure. <laughs> now that's funny if you think about it. He had outlived his peers, so he was rejoicing that there was no peer pressure. But for those of us who haven't hit our 100th birthday yet, we do live with the reality of peer pressure, don't we? What are we talking about when we say peer pressure? What we mean is this, a feeling that any of us might have to do the same thing as our friends or people of our own age group, our own social group, in order to be liked by them, in order to be accepted by them, in order to be um, respected by them. There are people in our lives whose opinions, whose acceptance we crave, and so whatever it is they want us to do, we tend to do. That's peer pressure. Now, we often think of peer pressure as something that young people face. And it's true, and for those of you here listening to me today who are in your teens, you can relate to this. The teen years are particularly difficult when it comes to peer pressure. They we're trying to find our identity, we're trying to find our tribe, as it were, and so we want to fit in, we want to be accepted, we want to be liked. And so our tendency is to do what they want us to do, to say what they're saying. And yet it's not just teens that wrestle with this, is it? Some of you kids here today haven't seen your teen years yet, and yet you know what Pastor Larry's talking about, don't you? That there's pressure to do what your friends are doing, there's pressure to, do what to say what your friends are saying. And even those of you that are moving beyond your teen years, maybe some of you college students, some of you other young adults, you still live with this too, don't you? And you know, those of us here today that are middle-aged, I shouldn't say us, those of you who are here today who are middle-aged, and yes, for those of us that are older, we still feel the pressure to give in, to fit in, to yield to peer pressure. You know... Sometimes peer pressure can be a good thing. I mean, you think about your peer group, one of, one of the uh, leader types in your group said, hey, let's go help that person in need, and your group did that. that. That would be good peer pressure. But you know, and I know, that not all peer pressure is good. In fact, a lot of peer pressure, I would even guess most peer pressure ends up not honoring God. Our peer group, whether it's our age or social circles, political party, whatever, our group, our tribe, I'm going to call it, wants us to do certain things. They want us to say certain things. Maybe on social media, our tribe is all saying the same kind of thing on social media, and we want to fit in. We want to be accepted. We want to be in the group. And so we do, and we say what our peers are doing and saying even knowing at times upon quieter reflection that doing that or saying that, maybe on social media, does not honor God. So here's a question for us today. Where do we, professed followers of Jesus Christ, where do we find the strength? Where do we find the courage to say no to peer pressure that dishonors God. 
You know, sometimes peer pressure takes the form of being ostracized or maybe even being mocked if we don't go along with our tribe. And all of us have faced that at one time or another. That because we're followers of Jesus Christ, we realize that our peer group, our tribe, wants to do something that does not honor God, wants us to say something that does not honor God, and, and we feel that pressure. But you know, sometimes the heat gets turned up even higher. It's like the thermostat gets cranked up, and for some, and maybe even some of you listening to me today, you have felt peer pressure, you felt the heat that is hotter than just mere ostracism being left out or being mocked, being made fun of. It could be some of you here have lost jobs because of your stand for Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're unwelcome to pursue a certain degree because of your stand for Jesus Christ. And in some parts of the world, the heat gets turned up even a notch higher, and there are Christians who get thrown in jail, get thrown in prison, because of their commitment to be loyal to Jesus Christ. That they do not give in to the peer pressure of conformity, and they end up sacrificing their freedom. And yes, there are Christians in the world today, there are people today, who are being martyred, being killed for being followers of Jesus Christ, for staying loyal to Jesus Christ and his gospel. I looked it up a couple days ago. As nearly as the different ministries that pray for persecuted Christians can tell, as nearly as they can tell, on an average, 11 Christians every day lose their lives because of their stand for Jesus Christ and his gospel. 11 every day. It is quite likely that while we are meeting here today in Winona Lake, Indiana, that there's a Christian or more than one Christian losing his or her life today because of their commitment to stay true to Jesus Christ. Places like North Korea and Sudan and Pakistan and Indonesia India. Those of you that have known me over the years know that I have a reputation of being a perennial optimist. In fact, one time I was actually given at a public church meeting a plaque that had my name on it with rose-colored glasses. <laughs> a few of you veterans here of the church today can remember that. <laughs> I was accused, as it were, of always wearing rose-colored glasses. And yet, even though I am known as a perennial optimist, I, I'm going to go on record today to say that I think that unless the Lord sends a supernatural revival, unless he sends sovereignly revival, that we will see the situation here in our country get increasingly more difficult for Christians. Those of us that have been followers of Jesus Christ for more than 10 years would probably unite in saying that it's more difficult today to take a stand for Jesus Christ than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it is quite likely that 10 years from now and 20 years from now, the heat will get cranked up even hotter and that it will become more difficult to stay loyal to Jesus Christ in the midst of increased pressure to conform to this world system 
that this world will pressure us to look at life a certain way, to think of life a certain way, to do life a certain way, that we know is contrary to the revealed will of God. And if we say, no, I will not conform to this world's system, its way of thinking, its way of doing, its way of doing life, then we will feel the heat. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather seven times over. And more than anything else, more than anything else, I pray that our grandchildren would love Jesus Christ more than anything this world has to offer, more than everything this world has to offer. But friends, when I pray that, I am cognizant that that might be extremely painful for them. That maybe after I'm long in heaven, my grandchildren will feel the heat of this world and staying true to Jesus Christ, feeling the persecution. Where do we find the strength? Where do we find the courage to stay true to Jesus Christ in the face of the fire? In the midst of the fire of persecution, of pressure to conform, where do you and I find the strength to stand? Join me, please, in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel, the third chapter. What's going on in this passage? Well, some of you have been here over the last couple of Sundays as we studied the book of Daniel together. We remember Pastor Mark's sermon from a couple of weeks ago on Daniel chapter 1 where we met four probably teenagers Four teenagers who were being reprogrammed by the Babylonian system and its king Nebuchadnezzar, wanting to conform them to the way of life, the way of thinking of that pagan nation. But these four teenagers went against the flow, didn't they? And they said, uh, we, we don't want to do that. And they had to learn to rely on God even in their young years. Their faith was tested. Now, I'm, I can't know for sure, but I'm going to read between the lines. And by the time we get to chapter 3, probably 15 to 20 years have gone by. I don't think uh, the men we meet in Daniel 3 are any longer teenagers. I'm guessing they're probably in their 30s. So now that they are in these older years, they're in their uh, years of prime, if you want to say that, are they still going to stay true to Jesus Christ? Are they still going to stay true to the coming Messiah, to the God of the universe? Are they going to stay true to him in the midst of persecution now? We're going to read Daniel 3 in, in segments. And we're going to have like three scenes to this picture today. One is in verses 1 through 7. What kind of pressure were these three Hebrews facing? And then we're going to look at the next passage. How would these three... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they are known by their Babylonian names. Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah were their Hebrew names. How were these three to stand strong in the midst of this pressure? How did they respond? And then thirdly, the third scene of our story today is, how did God show his glory? So what kind of pressure were these three Hebrew men under? Have you found Daniel chapter 3? 
Let me read the first seven verses for us of Daniel 3, and we're looking for a question, answer to the question, what kind of pressure are they under? The Word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to, ga sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's take a look at this statue. It was big, wasn't it? If you're not, you don't think in realms of cubics, let me just put it into our measuring system. Uh, this statue would have been 90 feet high. That, that's pretty high. You're looking at these light poles here. That's probably about twice that. 90 feet high and 9 feet across, maybe on a pedestal. So it was big. Now, what was a statue made out of? Gold, I hear a few people saying, and it was made out of gold. Uh, other than the astonishing cost that would have been, maybe it was gold-plated, but even then, the cost of a statue like this would just be phenomenal. But in addition to the phenomenal cost value of a 90-foot gold statue, what else catches your attention? What was it made out of? It was made out of gold. Now, I know not all of you, but many of you, maybe most of you were here last Sunday when Jake Osborne walked us through chapter 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, didn't he? He had had a dream of a particular statue, and, and uh, he was trying to find some wise men who could tell him the dream and interpret it. And they were all at a loss until someone remembered Daniel. And Daniel came and Daniel related to King Nebuchadnezzar the details of his dream and the reason for the dream, what it meant. If you were here last Sunday, help me remember what that statue looked like. What was the top of it? What was its head? It was made out of gold. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar knows that he's the, the first empire acknowledged on that statue. But then below that gold head would have been like a silver chest. So the next level down, not quite as valuable, maybe a little stronger, but not as valuable, probably referring to the Medo-Persian Empire that would succeed his Babylonian Empire. And then you look further down in that statue, and so we have gold, we have silver, and next down was bronze. 
bronze. Again, a bit stronger, not as valuable, probably depicting Greece. An empire that would succeed, the empire that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar's. It would be the third empire acknowledged in this statue. And then the, the bottom part of that statue was made out of iron, and even iron mixed with clay. Less valuable, iron's pretty strong, unless it's mixed with clay. Depicting, no doubt, the Roman Empire that would succeed the Greeks. And so here's this statue, and the clear message of this statue is, Nebuchadnezzar, as glorious as your empire is, as glorious as your kingdom is, made out of gold, it is not ultimate, and it is not eternal. Nebuchadnezzar, you will be succeeded by another empire. There'll be another empire come and defeat Babylon and take its place. And that happened as we continue through the book of Daniel. We'll see that. And even the Medo-Persian empire that succeeds yours will not be eternal. It will not be ultimate. There'll be another empire that succeeds that one, Greece. And the Greeks aren't going to be ultimate, and they're not going to be eternal, that there will be a Roman empire that succeeds them. But guess what? The Roman Empire is neither ultimate nor eternal. But then in the dream, remember in the dream, there's this rock, not hewn with human hands. There's this rock that comes and knocks down the statue and grows into a mountain. And that kingdom is eternal, isn't it? It is ultimate. It is eternal. So what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? Why would he make a statue that's all gold. Now, when Daniel wrote his prophecy here, when he wrote his account, he didn't necessarily tell us all those details. But I'll tell you what, I have to wonder, I'll just say it as strongly as I can, I have to wonder if Nebuchadnezzar wasn't making a statement. That he was defying God and deifying himself. Defying God, deifying himself. He says, I, 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 heard, I heard the dream, Daniel. I heard your interpretation, Daniel, but I, I don't like it. I don't like to think about my kingdom one day being usurped. I don't like the idea of my kingdom one day being defeated by a succeeding kingdom. I want my kingdom to be eternal. I want my kingdom to be ultimate, not God's. And my friends, when you think about that, that lie of the evil one is as old as Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember how Satan and his subtle schemes seduced Eve into believing that why, why serve God, why submit to God when, when you could be God? How did that work out, Eve? How did that work out, daughters of Eve and sons of Adam? That we're living in this era between the gardens because they believe that subtle scheme of the liar, the the fire of God, Satan himself. We are feeling the effects of that even now as we continue our traverse through this fallen world. We, all creation groans. That lie of the evil one is seen again in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And so back to Daniel 3. So everyone had been told there are people... Nebuchadnezzar's empire was huge. It had 127 provinces. It spread the whole way from down where Ethiopia is today, the whole way to India. It was huge. There were 127 different provinces. And the leaders of all those different provinces were called 
back to the capital in Babylon, out there near Babylon on the plain of Dura, so that Nebuchadnezzar could try to unite everyone around this statue of either himself or one of his gods, we don't know which, but he was trying to unite everyone around his cause, his name, his empire. And he says, everybody from spread out that's now gathered here before me, I want everyone, when you hear the instruments, get on your faces. Get on your faces. And if you don't cave, if you don't bend your knee, if you don't get on your face, if you don't conform, you will immediately be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so the instrument sounded, and whatever, what did everyone do? Yeah, they, they got on their faces. You bet they did. I mean, who wants to be thrown into a fiery furnace? So what are these three Hebrew men going to do? By the way, we don't know where Daniel is. I'm not going to take time. It could be because of his position. He was back in the capital running things while the emperor was out there on the plain of Dura. I don't know. But he obviously wasn't here. But these three Hebrews, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how are they going to respond to this? Now, I realize it's just my imagination, but I was trying to imagine how you might justify, how you might justify just, just genuflecting, just, why don't I just bend, you know, I mean, what's the point of resisting? It's not going to make any difference. I mean, the, the emperor is not going to change his mind because of me. Things aren't going to change because of me. What's the point of even resisting? Why suffer a fiery death when my death isn't going to accomplish anything? They, they could have rationalized that way, or, or maybe they would have said something like, well, I'm personally against bowing to idols, but because of my political position, I'll vote for it. Or they could have even said something like, a guy's got to live, doesn't he? Does he? What's going to happen? Kids, do you know this story? How are Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego going to respond? Let's read now a longer section, verses 8 through 23. And since it's longer, if you have a Bible in front of you, you might want to follow along. Daniel chapter 3, beginning of verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O oh, king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, 
we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known that you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So how were these three Hebrews going to hold up under this pressure to bow down in the midst of a horrible martyr's death? Well, as you know and I know, they displayed a faith in the one true God even in the midst of that phenomenal pressure. So here, I mean... Here's this huge statue, and, and the crowd, the crowd around that statue would have been huge, because not only were there 127 different provinces represented, but different officials from each of those provinces, so there were hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of people out there on the plain of Dura. And the cacophony of the musical instruments started, and, and all these people get on their faces, except three who would have stood out like, like three NBA players in a kindergartner class. I mean, standing for God is lonely sometimes, isn't it? And I've tried to get into the minds of these three men, and I realize that's fallible. But I wonder what went through their minds as they decided to stand they had at least some time, they had at least some minutes to think about their response to this pressure. I don't know if they chatted among themselves, but as I've tried to stand in their sandals, I, I wondered that these men now in their 30s, if they stood there and they recalled, if they recalled what their parents and their grandparents had poured into them as young men still in Jerusalem, and their parents and their grandparents taught them God's commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Did the echoes of their childhood discipleship, their childhood training come back to them that day as they were making their decision, do I bow or do I stand? We were taught, we were taught by our parents, our grandparents, the Ten Commandments. Don't bow down to anything 
other than God himself. Did these three men remember what their fathers and their grandfathers had related to them about the prophecy of Isaiah? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and, and you are mine. Did they remember these words they were taught from Isaiah? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. Had what had been poured into them as children, as young teens, now come back and strengthen them as they made their decision to stand when the thousands around them bowed to the God of their age. They stood, knowing full well what was about to come. And their resolve did not go unnoticed. Some of their peers, some of their fellow officials, people that held positions in the government very similar to theirs, noticed them standing when they were bowed and they reported to Nebuchadnezzar with, I believe, a measure of jealousy mixed with racial bigotry. Did you catch that? Where they said in verse 12, Excuse me. They said, the wind is playing havoc with my Bible here. In verse 12, these men came, listen to the jealousy, listen to the racial bigotry. There are certain Jews among whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, part of that's slander, isn't it? They pay no attention to you, really? I mean, these had been loyal officials. In fact, so much so that they held positions that were pretty high for men their age. That was slanderous. But part of the accusation was true, wasn't it? The accusation that they would not bow down, that was true. And so these men were called before the emperor And he's now furious with rage. And he's going to give them a second chance. And he says, okay, guys, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. I'm going to give you a second chance. We're going to do this again. When you hear the instruments, I want you to bow down. I want you to bow down now to my statue. And did you hear hear what Nebuchadnezzar asked them? It's in verse 15. Don't don't miss this. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, and I'm sure it was a rhetorical question. He said, what God is able to deliver you out of my hands? He He did not say, what God can deliver you from my gods. He said, what God could deliver you from my hands It's a rhetorical question, but don't you want to answer him? (laughs) Don't you want to say, hey, Neb, you're going to find out. (laughs) 
Hang on there, you're gonna be humbled in just a few minutes. But these three men, Mishael, Azariah, Hanani, these three Hebrew men were resolved, even with the second chance, they were resolved not to bow down to that idol. What, what was going on? How would you describe them? Look at verses 16 through 18 again. I know we already read this, but I want you to read it again and to listen to these men's response to Nebuchadnezzar, and you look for some words. Look for some descriptive words that would define how they responded. Shadrach, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, if you come up, what word would you come up to describe that response in verse 16? The word that I came up with was calm. Calm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not stand in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and say, We have our rights! Are you going to listen to these people with, with their bigotry and their jealousy? We've got our rights. We have the same rights as any of these other people out here. How dare you? Neither did they grovel in the dirt and act like they had no alternative. There was a calmness to their response, wasn't there? I would even say a kind of a quiet calmness. Well, let's go ahead and read verse 17 again. If this be so, they continue, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What word would you find to describe that? The word that came to my mind was confident. Now for you fellow word geeks, what does the word confident mean? Confide, with faith, with faith. Confident means with faith. That word has gotten used in our culture primarily to have confidence in yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about faith in whom? In the God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not only a calmness, but they had a confidence that their God was sovereign. They said, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, if our God wants to deliver us from this fiery furnace, he can do that. But what else? Look at verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's courageous, isn't it? They were not saying God has to deliver us from this fire for us to be loyal to him. You know, sometimes we put contingencies on God. We, we put qualifiers on our loyalty to God. God, if you'll just do this for me, I will do this for you. If you just get me out of this fix, I'll serve you. God, if you just get me out of this predicament, I'll be loyal to you. And we can put contingencies on God. What these three men were saying to that pagan emperor was this. Our God is able. He is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if in his sovereignty he chooses to let us die a fiery martyr's death, that's okay too. Because our loyalty to him is not contingent on him rescuing us from the fire. They were courageous. These three men were marked by a calm, confident courage. 
How do you explain that? How do you explain these three men in the prime of their life being threatened with what seemed like a sure, fiery death as martyrs? What would give them a calm, confident courage in the midst of pressure like none of us have ever faced? I've been chewing on that. I've been chewing on that for a couple weeks. And I keep reading the book of Daniel looking for answers, and this is what I've come up with. You ready? The eyes of their heart were open so that they could see higher. They could see higher. So I'm assuming that King Nebuchadnezzar was sitting on some sort of throne out there on the plain of Dura. And so when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought up to his throne, they were probably looking up. So they're looking it up at the man who was the most powerful man in the world at that time. He controlled a huge empire. And thousands of people there on the plain of Dora were expressing their loyalty to him. And these three men are looking up at Nebuchadnezzar the king. But you see, my friends, my Christian friends, they had eyes of their heart opened. And they could see higher. And as they looked higher than the king, who did they see? They saw the king of kings. They saw the king of kings and lord of lords. And seeing their God, the king of kings and lord of lords, gave them perspective. The Nebuchadnezzar is not ultimate. He is not sovereign over all things. We worship the king of kings and the lord of lords. There's something very calming about seeing the sovereign one with the eyes of our hearts opened. They could see higher. And they could see farther. What I mean by that is, they didn't see their deaths as the end of their story. Back in chapter 2, I'm going to flip back to chapter 2 and read verse 44 again. It says, and in these days, this is Daniel relating the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and in the, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, including yours, Nebuchadnezzar, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, these three surely knew that part of the dream. They were buddies with Daniel. Daniel would have told them, Guess what God showed Nebuchadnezzar and therefore showed me? That he is an eternal kingdom. And all these powerful countries, all these powerful kingdoms around us who in their pomp and their pride think that somehow they're ultimate and they're eternal. They're wrong. That each of the kingdoms that will arise now and in the future will one day be replaced by an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God himself. The Christ Jesus, the coming Messiah, will reign forever and ever. And these three men could not only see higher, they could not only see the, the king of kings standing over the king, but they could see farther. They could see farther than their current life over this temporal situation that they were in, and they saw an eternal kingdom awaiting them. And seeing higher and seeing farther gave them this calm, confident courage. Nebuchadnezzar's fire just got hotter still. He was enraged. 
He wanted that furnace heated seven times hotter. Might be a figure of speech, but quite frankly, friends, he's irrational, isn't he? He's being irrational. Make it as hot as you can. And he found some of his strongest soldiers. And he said, tie these guys up right now. Don't even give them time to take off their turbans or their outer clothes or anything. Just tie them up right now as they are and throw them in there. And that fire, that furnace was so hot that the soldiers who threw them in were immediately cremated. So how, kids, how's God going to display his glory? Let's read the rest of the chapter, verse 24 of Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is it's like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power of the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire, this is almost humorous, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. This guy's not very nice, is he? Shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God rescued these three calm, confident, courageous men. When Nebuchadnezzar looked into that fire, he saw four men. And he couldn't believe what his eyes were seeing. And he says to the people around him, wait, did, didn't we throw in three? But I see four. And the four I see are walking around unharmed by the fire. The, the ropes that had bound them are burned off apparently. They're no longer bound and they're walking free. That fourth man was different, wasn't he? Was it an angel? Was it the pre-incarnate Christ? We don't really know for sure. It could have been the pre-incarnate Christ. It could have been an angel sent from God. But either way, my friends, God is displaying his love, his compassion, his care, his protection for these three Calm, confident, courageous men. While the king, his face contorted with rage and anger, the king of kings was smiling upon these men. And I believe they saw his smile.
even as they realize there's a fourth man in the furnace with them. So how did Nebuchadnezzar react? He approached the entrance as close as he could, and he shouted for these men to come out. Servants of the Most High, come out, come here. And they did. Now, <laughs> I've tried to picture this. I mean, these three guys come out of the furnace, and it says that the other people gathered around. So their peers, their fellow government officials gathered around. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if they not only were looking at these three, but maybe they were feeling their clothes. Maybe they were feeling their hair. Maybe, maybe they were smelling their clothes. And they say, how, how do you explain this? These men are not burned. Their hair's not singed. They don't even smell like smoke. King Nebuchadnezzar was so moved that he made the worship of the true God an acceptable religion. Now, let's be clear. He's not yet converted, is he? He's not saying, my God. He keeps saying the God of Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. He keeps naming the three. That's their God. But even though he was not yet converted, he was moved to respect this God who just defied him. And he even promoted these three Hebrew men in the province of Babylon. So, what's the Holy Spirit doing with you today in this well-known very well-known story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. We love to read it. We love to hear it. And we love to read it to kids. This is one of those stories that make the storybooks that we read to our kids and our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews. The problem with the stories in the Bible that are so well-known is that we tend to hold them at arm's length. Somehow they don't feel like they relate to us. They're, they're just hero stories, the way you would watch a, a hero movie on TV or, or read an engaging book about some hero. And we tend to hold them out here. But the Word of God is to impact us. The Word of God is to shape us, not entertain us. And I think one of the difficulties in reading a story like this unmoved, other than admiring these three guys, is that we feel like it doesn't directly relate to our lives. We don't have any 90-foot statues that people are making us worship. And it's so easy to say, well, you know, we live in 21st century North America. Um, we don't have to wrestle with this issue of bowing to idols. Or do we? What, what are the gods of our age? Friends, you know what an idol is. It's anything other than God himself that we treat as ultimate, that we treat as most important, most valuable in our lives. It's what we live for, what we like to talk about, what we devote our time and our resources to. Idols can take so many different forms. So many different things could be idols in our lives. And I got thinking about this current era that we're living in. And so many people have acknowledged that we're living in an era that is so polarized. People get ugly. People camp on their tribe. 
this is my issue, this is our issue, this is my position on this, and I'm not only going to take my stand here on my issues, on my tribe, but I'm going to mock anybody who disagrees. And friends, when we get passionate, that passionate about anything, anyone, other than the Lord himself, we have just told you about our idols. And it's dangerous to start using examples because the temptation is to feel left out if I don't touch yours. But just to make a point, let me at least mention a couple that I think we're seeing in our current culture. Might we make idols of particular political parties or particular political platforms? And we say, this is what matters. My tribe, my party is what matters. And we talk about it, we write about it, we get on social media, we gather friends around us who agree with us, and we make fun, we mock at anybody who might be of a different tribe. Or maybe it's some social issue. And friends, please hear me, I don't prefer to be misquoted here. Many of the social issues that we're wrestling with today need to be wrestled with, I'm not denying that. But we can get so passionate about our particular social issue that it becomes our identifier. It becomes what we're known for, it's what we talk about. It's who we hang with. It's the tribe we want to be part of. We're the people of this cause. We're the people of this cause. And our cause is the most important cause. And if you're not part of our cause, if you don't agree with us, then there's something wrong with you. And we mock people that aren't part of our social issue tribe. And we identify with those who are already part of that. Or it could be something even more volatile. It could be mask, no mask. We could go on and on. But we are living in a day when there are many current issues that can become idols in the hearts of people. And if you say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I've been making an idol of something? I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, I can't answer that absolutely. But, but let me just ask you to do something, to evaluate. What do my friends know me for? What do the people closest to me know me for? Maybe family. Maybe your closest friends. Maybe your doormates. Maybe your friends on social media. What are you known for? I say, oh, I, I'll tell you what, he's, he's all about this, he's all about that, man. He's passionate about that, man. He can, he can go on for hours ranting and raving about this issue or that party or this or that. Friends, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, ought we not to evaluate? Ought we not to repent? Then why would we be more passionate about a political party, a social cause, a hobby, anything? Why would we be more passionate about something like that instead of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be a blessing if our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, wouldn't it be a blessing if our coworkers, our friends say, well, I'll tell you what, she's all about Jesus He's all about Jesus. I mean, that's what, he loves to talk about Jesus, man. He is passionate about Jesus Christ. Man, you, you get him talking about that, he can, he can talk for a while. 
about Jesus Christ. Friends, what are we demonstrating are the idols of our heart? Today's National Grandparents Day, and as a grandfather, I've been thinking about this issue related to that issue. Parents and grandparents, other adults, some of you are aunts and uncles, your teachers. How are we preparing the coming generations to face increased pressure to conform to the gods of this age in the years ahead? How are we preparing them? What kind of impact are we having on the coming generations by God's grace pouring into them so that they might stand strong for the Lord Jesus despite what comes, no matter what comes, that the pressure as it increases 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, if the Lord tarries, that our children, our grandchildren would say, Jesus Christ matters to me more than anything else, more than everything else this world has to offer. I've been reflecting on 2 Timothy chapter 1 in recent months where a spiritual father on death row for the sake of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, writes a last letter to his son in the faith. And what is he going to say to his son in the faith? Is he going to say, son, avoid my predicament. Do whatever you can, son. Do whatever you can to not get in the predicament I'm in. Stay off of death row, man. Stay out of prison. Go find a quiet life. Make a name for yourself. Start a family. Go find an easy life, son. That's what matters. No, you read it. You read it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writing his last letter from death row writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, Son, don't be ashamed of Christ or of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. Can you imagine looking at your son, your grandson, your granddaughter, your, grand, your, your daughter, your niece, nephew? Can you imagine looking at the coming generations and say, Join me. Join me in suffering for Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is worthy of all. That's the kind of impact we want to have on the coming generations. That this church would be known as a church that's pouring into the coming generations. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would grow up seeing Jesus Christ is precious. Jesus Christ is more valuable than any of the gods of this world. Is that what we're modeling? Our kids, our grandkids, they're going to learn what to die for, but what they see us living for. They're watching us. And if they see what we're living for, they're going to know what to die for. Jesus Christ. Are we teaching them? Are we teaching them the word of God? Are we showing them how Christ is from Genesis to Revelation? Is he the object of our attention, our affections, when we interact with the coming generations? Are we spending more of our time on our news feeds and social media than we are with God's holy word? What do they see in us? What do they hear from us? What do they hear us praying for them? We want the coming generations, we want us, but we want the coming generations to be marked by a calm, confident courage. That come what may, they will stand for Jesus Christ, even if it means dying for him. And the way they're going to have that calm, confident courage 
as if by God's amazing grace, he opens the eyes of their heart that they can see higher. They can see the king of kings beyond the kingdoms of this world. And they can see farther. They can see that this life is not all there is. There is eternal life awaiting us. How thankful we are for Jesus Christ. You know, you and I have at times bent the knee to the gods of this age when we know we ought not to have. And we should repent in those times and fall on the grace found in Jesus Christ. That the times where we have failed bowing to the gods of this age, our Lord Jesus never failed. When Satan attacked him out there in the wilderness, Jesus stood strong four times Satan came at him and four times Jesus refused to bow. Oh, how thankful we are for Jesus Christ. Not only did he stand strong for us, but then he went into the fire of his father's holy wrath to pay the penalty for our disobedience. All gratitude to him, all trust in him. Before I pray and the worship team comes, let me leave you with some encouraging words from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. He said, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.